Great to see you all here, uh, particularly if you're visiting today. This is a place, whether you have been a Christian for some time, uh, whether you've just become a Christian, or if you're just exploring faith, we want to make you feel welcome. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a place where we all explore faith and, and what it means to live with God uh, together, and we're going to continue doing that uh, today. Uh, my name's Matt, part of the pastoral team uh, here. Uh, just a heads up, I'm going to be away, I'm going to be off now for uh, a couple of months. I've got to have uh, some surgery uh, tomorrow uh, for prostate cancer, and then I'm going to be uh, off for a little while uh, after that. Um, nothing to worry about. Should be fine. I'll be back end of uh, January, uh, beginning of February. I've uh, got some great things, uh, great things planned. So um, one of the things that, that I'm always very conscious of and, and, and eager to do um, in this role, and particularly in this moment, in our times together is actually do more than just deposit ideas in your minds, and, and that's not unimportant. But I have, a, I have a strong sense also that, in a sense, what we can do with our words and our language and in times like this is to actually open up reality in very significant ways. Uh, as we point to the, to the bigger story that we belong to, as we explore other dimensions of human experience that don't really get acknowledged in our culture. As we do this through speaking to one another and, and in times like this, it does have the effect in a way of taking a narrow slit, a very narrow view of reality uh, and, and kind of opening it up and allowing us to see and actually experience more. Language actually has a really important role in this. Language is not something by which we communicate information, but it shapes, it creates a framework through which we experience reality in some important ways. Because we give names to different things and, and we, you know, we, talk, we create language to distinguish certain elements. Uh, and that actually, and not only that, but when we tell the story, the story of God and the story that we're a part of, it actually sets our expectations up. It actually changes the way that we experience reality. It, it makes us expect more. It makes us look for more. Um, there's, a very, uh, there's a famous uh, experiment, you may have heard, it's the, the, the good old gorilla on the basketball court ex uh, experiment. Anyone ever, ever heard that before? It's a famous in, in cognitive uh, psychology, this experiment where they got participants uh, to, to they, they asked the participants to count the number of times the team wearing black, whatever color it was, passed the ball. You know, you've got to count the passes on the basketball court, you know, and so all of these participants would go and they count the passes on the basketball court. And during actually that, that, uh, that block of time, uh, a, a man in a gorilla suit, not a real gorilla, but a man in a gorilla suit, <laughs> would, came on to the basketball court and stayed on the basketball court for about nine or 10 seconds and then went off. And less than half of the people actually noticed the gorilla on the basketball court because everyone else was folk, they weren't expecting that, right? It was just this really outlandish sort of thing. That's why they did it, that's why they did that. It was like, we're gonna choose something really outlandish, something that people would never ever expect, like a guy in a gorilla suit dancing around on a, on a basketball court, less than half of the people didn't notice it because they weren't looking for it. And so it's really interesting the way that, that we can 
uh, we can limit our possible experience actually because we don't, there's just certain things that we're not looking for or not expecting because we, we're, we're looking through a very narrow slit, you know, and, uh, and that can be a very limiting thing. And, and as I said, language, you know, can have, um, can have a role in this. There's a, there's a classic part um, of uh, George Orwell's novel, 1984. Who's read 1984, George Orwell's novel? A number of you have. Uh, a lot of people do it, uh, do it in school. Um, if you're a literature teacher, set it for your kids because it's a, it's a great read. In this novel, they've got this ironically titled Ministry of Truth, right? And it's, 1984 is, a, is this, the, the, the setting is this total, you know, totalitarian state that's looking to control everyone, right? And they want to actually even control the way that people think, right? And so there's this scene in the Ministry of Truth, as it's ironically uh, called, and they're thinking, you know, maybe what we'll do, what we're going to do is that we're going we're gonna to take words out of the language. We're going to make certain words illegal, and we're going to narrow the language down to a certain point where people aren't going to actually even be able to think in ways that we don't want them to think. Not that that would ever happen. Um, but in a way... Uh, our, in, in many ways, within our culture, our reality, our field of reality has been significantly reduced because we hold uh, to very much reductionist views of reality, reductionist views of the human person. We flatten reality down. Another classic uh, novel from uh, the late... 19th century is um, this novel. I think we've got a picture of it here. This novel by Edwin A. Abbott, and it's, it's, it's a real classic. Uh, I recommend it. It's an entertaining read. It's called Flatland, and I've talked about this before. And already in the late 19th century, he was seeing uh, a pattern emerging, uh, a pattern of thinking, a narrowing of reality. And he certainly believed that people live in a very flat reality, People weren't living in a way that acknowledged that there was really more to life than all of the social etiquette and the, the class system and, and you know, all of the things in that late, uh, late Victorian, late Victorian society. And so he tells uh, this story about, uh, uh, called Flatland, about a two-dimensional world where he has these characters, they're like squares and triangles and octagons and hexagons, and, and it's a funny sort of story. And there's this really complex social system in this two-dimensional world, right? And there's these squares and, and triangles, and they're all relating to each other, and, and they construct this hierarchy based on how many sides you have, right? So if you're a triangle, uh, you're right at the bottom. Uh, you've only got three sides. That's ridiculous. You've only got three sides. And then, and then there's, you know, and then you go up to the octagon, and then you've got the circle, you know, right at the top. You know, they're like the, the really the, the, the upper class. And, and it, you know, describes all of this, you know, this existence in Flatland, right? And then one day, the, the main character, Mr. Square, is visited by a sphere. And the sphere comes into their work, because the sphere is three-dimensional, right? So the sphere comes in, begins at a point, and then gets really large, and then sort of disappears again, and they think, this can't be, this, it can't be real, right? It, it, 
how can that possibly happen? And it's really interesting the way that this unfolds because they have no, they have no categories. They, have, they, they can't imagine how this could even be case because they, haven't, they had never imagined that there could even be another dimension, a third dimension. It's really interesting in the novel at the end, Mr. S- the, the sphere suggests, uh, the square suggests to the sphere, well, maybe there's a fourth dimension as well. And it's Edwin Abbott kind of pushing uh, against the narrow life view that we tend to live with. There is another dimension. This is what I've been hammering on about this because I think our culture, already, if, in, if already in the late 19th century, Edwin Abbott could be concerned that our reality was being flattened down, that is certainly the case. Uh, certainly the case now. And we've flattened our language down, we've flattened our expectations down. And unfortunately, I think a lot of Christians even believe Christian things but still essentially live in flatland with flat expectations with a kind of flat faith. And one of the things that we look to do here is to open that reality up. So I wanna, I, I wanna take a few moments to talk about uh, some things. And, and these are some things that I've pointed to before. Um, so forgive the repetition. Uh, if you've heard all this before, uh, feel free to have a little nap. The first, um, the first very important thing actually, and that I've talked about is our view of God. And our view of God, interestingly, in history, has tended to relate to our view of the universe. Now we, many people, even many Christians in our culture subscribe to a view of God. It's, it's, such, a, it's, it's such a distinctly non-biblical view of God that there's even a word for it. It's called deism, deism. Uh, this is a view that became quite prominent in the, during the European Enlightenment in, uh, in European society. Uh, European Enlightenment is 17th century, 18th century. And uh, this, this begins uh, around when the scientific revolution uh, was happening. Uh, the scientific re- revolution, which was a, a wonderful thing, um, and many of those people were Christians. But this is what happened. So uh, Isaac Newton, um, really changed the way that people thought uh, about the universe. Before that, the universe was understood to be something that was animated from within by a real sense of purpose, uh, that everything tended to, to uh, be moving. You know, they saw design in everything. They felt that everything was moving towards a, uh, you know, an, an ultimate sense of purpose. Um, Newton, Isaac Newton certainly believed that but what happened was he constructed a view of, of the universe that, that, that had an effect on later generations. Basically, he depicted the universe as like a big machine uh, because he, he noticed that you could measure the way that it works and, and, and there was this, in all things, he you know, pictured basically objects in empty space. And this, by the way, has been superseded in science. This view of the universe has been superseded since the beginning of the 20th century, even in fact since Faraday in the 19th century. This idea of of just objects in an empty space, that was a Newtonian view that have a, a, you know, cause and effect relationship. Anyway, not to get too complicated, but basically it was like the universe is just like a big machine, right? And, And so that... 
changed the way that people thought about God because then, okay, if the universe is just this big machine, then yes, God, they thought, well, there's so much design, it's like a clock, and so they, you know, so yes, there must be a creator, but it's like, but what sort of creator did they create? And essentially, it was a God who makes the machine, winds it up to, you know, like a clock, and then just lets it go, and then occasionally sort of ducks in when things aren't working so well, will occasionally duck in and fix things, right? Or, or where, where there are gaps, will come in and, and kind of, you know, bridge things and tinker with the object and then basically put... So you have this, you have this sort of interventionist view of God that comes in, withdraws, comes in, withdraws. And that's actually what you call deism. Interesting thing to know, as I said, is that that's not the way that science now depicts the universe. It's way, way weirder than they ever, ever thought. And it certainly looks like, and there's been a move back to this view that there certainly looks like there's some kind of purpose guiding the whole kind of thing. Now, there are many, you know, classic philosophers come up with a lot of different ways to account for this. Anything to get rid of God, right? (laughs) Uh, So they come up with other explanations for this, but they've certainly moved beyond that old Newtonian uh, view, which isn't entirely wrong, just in case there are science teachers here. Uh, don't um, uh, Don't want to confuse anyone there. But here's the thing. That is a view, I think, that often we can we can actually hold. It's the view that is behind, particularly in our stream, it's the view that is behind this idea that we're all waiting for God to do the next big thing. That God's out there somewhere. And and in order for me to really believe and feel like I'm close to God, Come on, like when is God gonna come and, and do something? Maybe even if, if you don't yet believe, Maybe you're waiting for God to sort of turn up and show you something. Well, I know that there's a, you know, maybe, maybe there is a God out there somewhere. Well, if only he'd come and, you know, intervene here and actually show himself. And a lot of Christians can be like that too. We're just waiting for the next big thing. Now, maybe there are, you know, things that you're praying for and you're wanting God to see. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a faith that's based, that's sort of, lives in paralysis, waiting for, for what? The next big experience. You see, because the reality is, and what the Bible teaches us, is that we are, and for the thousandth time, we are immersed, we are immersed in the presence of God. The Bible says that in Him we live and move and have our being. There is a flow of God in all things, a movement of God. God is not just the creator back you know, at the beginning that winds up. No, God is both creating and sustaining perpetually. You are actually now experiencing the biggest miracle you could imagine. It's called the universe. It's called your life. It's called your very consciousness. That your very ability even to be aware of what is going on and to think and feel and self-reflect, even that is already a participation in something divine. You are experiencing right now a great miracle of God, 
unfolding. It's just so constant, this is the thing. It's the very imminence of it, it's the very constancy of it that causes us not to notice it. We're like fish in the ocean that say, ocean? I don't know if I believe in it. That's stupid. And I... Shame, where's the ocean? Is it there? Is it there? That's what it's like. No, we are immersed in God. And not just a God who is static, but a God who is moving. He is moving constantly. Not only that, but there is an aspect. There is an aspect of us too. Not only is there another dimension to reality, but there is actually another dimension to you because you are more than just a machine. You are more than just a biological machine. You are not just bodies. You are body and soul. But let me make this really clear because just to correct some misconceptions here. It's not like your body is trapped in, sorry, it's not like your soul is trapped within your body like a sort of ghost in a machine. That's the ghost in the machine view is a view that kind of goes back to roughly the ancient Greeks, Plato specifically, and makes its way even into Christian thought. This idea that you know, our soul is kind of trapped within, within our body. That's not the Christian view. I think a better way, and, I, and I'm gonna sort of use, gonna kind of picture this analogically uh, in this sense. It's what you could picture it, again, to use the multi-dimensional metaphor, that your soul is like a fourth dimension to your three-dimensional existence. See, we, when we think of the heavenly realms, like a spiritual realm, and the Bible speaks often of the heavenly realms, right? And we tend to think of that like it's somewhere else. You know, you, if you go Mars, you sort of turn right, go maybe a thousand light years to the right, it's out there somewhere. No, no. The heavenly realms are actually present as a, the best way to think about it. It's like another dimension. It's like a fourth dimension or however many dimensions there are. And I'm speaking kind of analogically here, but this is, I think a use, I've found this a useful way to understand this. And certainly this is closer to, to the way that the, Bib the Bible functionally depicts it. There is this other dimension, right? And even we have this other dimension to our being. It's like your soul is like a fourth dimension to your body. And by virtue of your soul, you kind of live in two places at once. It's just that those two places aren't two separate places. By virtue of your soul, your feet are on the ground, but your soul exists in, in heavenly places, in heavenly spaces. Okay, hopefully I haven't weirded you out completely just yet, but let me, let's read some scripture to try uh, to, uh, to ground this. Um, is this water for me? No one else has drunk this. Cheers, everyone. Ah, oh, that's good. Anyone, anyone else? Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. And I'm going to come back to this. 
uh, a little bit today. But because of God's great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive. He's talking spiritually brought us to life. It's almost like this sense, this dimension of our being was in some way dead. We think of death, we think physical death, but there's a spiritual death as well, you know. Almost like having a dead limb. There's a sense in which our soul can experience a kind of death, right? This only makes sense if you understand that there are more dimensions than just this, right? Otherwise, well, what do you mean made us dead? Made us alive? No, spiritually, because of his great love, God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. Now, we could think of this in terms of Jesus representing us and often we kind of leave it there. Well, yes, we are in the sense that he, Jesus is out there. Go to Mars, uh, what did I say, turn left, thousand light years, out there. He's there and he's representing it, but that's, it's actually not another place. It's not a separate place. Because otherwise, like, how can we be in two places at once? No, he's talking about a dimension. And it says here that we are seated with Christ in Christ. We are seated at the right hand of God the Father in heavenly places. Now that, that fact that there is, that yes, your feet are on the ground, yes, there is a three-dimensional world, but that fact that there is this other aspect of you that can be made alive, made alive and carried before God, reconciliation with God. This is what, why Jesus came to be seated with God, and that's, it's kind of symbolic language there, to be seated at the right hand of God, that's talking about the relationship and the authority and the authorization that you have. You have been reconciled, you are a child of God. You are seated in Christ, you are seated in a place of authority that should make a complete difference to the way that you live. But in order for that to make a complete difference, we have to begin to actually see and perceive differently. Do you know there's a difference between seeing and perceiving? This is well, uh, uh, well known in, in both philosophy and cognitive psychology. They make the distinction between seeing, like I see with my eyes and I take in certain data, but actually it's my mind that perceives. Because my mind takes all of the, all of the data and puts it together. There's, a, there's an active interpretation of the mind, like reality tends to take the form of the shape of the mind. 
It's why Paul says in Romans chapter one, be transformed, like first of all, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, surrender yourself completely to God, be, and thereby be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that you will actually begin to perceive reality accordingly. This is the opening up of the field of reality that I talked about just at the start. So that your reality opens up, that you see things that you didn't even, that you didn't see before. That you notice things that you would never notice, have noticed before. Because it's not just with your eyes that you see, it's with your mind that you perceive. And a renewed mind lives, according to the analogy that I've used, in four dimensions. Let me try to ground this. Feels like it needs some grounding. <laughs> they're, big, uh, they're big ideas. I used an image uh, recently that, um, that has just been really important to me, uh, particularly lately. using this picture of there being a flow of God in all things, this wonderful flow of God. And I, I saw myself and I see myself immersed as in a river, like a river of God flowing. Just a, you know, those big rivers, you can hardly see that they're moving because they're just so big, right? but there's this peaceful power, like there's this, this movement of the river and it's just so vast and so heavy and powerful. There's just this calm, steady movement to it. And God says to me, that's where you, you belong in the center of my flow. I want you to stay in the center of my flow, right? Surrender to the flow. You see, we are all immersed in God. I've said that at the start, but we have a, a choice to make. Are we gonna work with God? Are we gonna surrender to the flow of God? Or are we gonna spend our lives trying to fight the flow? Trying to go upstream, splashing around, exhausting ourselves. It's exhausting, right? Or do we surrender to the flow of God? and say with Jesus, your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And God says to us, God says to you, I want you to stay in, that's just, it's, could it be, could it really be this simple? I tell you it is. We have been reconciled with God. We are flowing with God. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places. We are, we are one with Christ. We are one with the presence of God, flowing by virtue of our soul, like one with the river, flowing. But here's the thing. The river is going to hit obstacles, big boulders. It's going to hit rapids, right? 
and you go through the rapids, right, and you, you, you smack against the rocks and you're banging and you're bruised and you're like, and you get angry and you try, you grab hold of the boulders and you try and move them. It's like you get frustrated and you just, and, and then, and then you, you just become a blockage to the current, right? Because you're trying to move these boulders and God says, don't, don't worry about anything. Don't worry about the boulders and the obstacles because the river always finds a way. The river will always just flow around the obstacles. Now you might say, oh, no, 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 but there's, I got like, but hang on, I got like piles of boulders, like a, like a damn wall. Do you know what happens when a great river, when you have something like a, a kind of a, like a dam wall and the river keeps flowing, do you know what happens? It gathers at the obstacle and it gets deeper and deeper and more powerful and heavier until it flows over and obliterates the obstacles. When you look at church history, it was the times of the greatest obstacles when the Christian faith was at its deepest. Deep pools are created where the obstacles are, deep pools. And God says, you just stay, just stay. Don't worry about the obstacles. You just stay in my river. And then the river flows down. You know, I went whitewater rafting uh, once in Tully River up in North Queensland. And you go, you know, you, it's like you've got to, you've got to, all that's required is actually small movements. You don't have to expend a lot of energy. And, and in a way, I, this is how I feel about the Christian life. It's not like I have to do much. It's just micro movements to make sure that I'm facing the right way because that's basically all you've got to do. You've got to make sure your, your, your raft stays in the flow, right? Micro movements, just going to stay in the flow and make sure you're facing the right direction. That's the main thing, right? And then, you know, and you go between the boulders and you get, you get hammered a bit. Sometimes you get turned over. But you've got to stay in there and stay with it. And then you get these places where, it, you know, after the rapids and you go into a nice little stretch. Think about the stretches. You have to actually paddle a bit. <laughs> it's like... But sometimes the river flows through thick jungle. It's like it flows in it and you think, there's no way through. All I see is the branch, I'm gonna, it's, this, this is gonna finish me. But what happens then is that you just go deeper into the river. Because the river that flows into the jungle will flow out of the jungle. You can't stop it. And for me, that's a picture of what life is like. What life must be like. And it's interesting as I've shared that before. That picture just staying in there. A lot of people have said to me, I just, I just don't know how to, I don't know how to get in the river. That all sounds great, but I'm just standing back here. 
I don't know how to get in there. And this is the thing that we need to take away. You are immersed in, you are immersed in the river and you are reconciled with God because straight away, we're always thinking, what do I need to do to get there? And we think, oh man, I just, you know, that sounds great, Matt, but I don't pray enough. I just don't pray enough. Or that sounds great, Matt, but I've, I've been going the other direction. I've been living this sort of life. You know, I'm a thousand miles away from, I'm not, there's, I'm not anywhere near that. It's always about something that we feel like we should have done that we haven't. You know, I'm such a fail. I'm a bad Christian. <laughs> That's the, I'm such a bad Christian. I didn't even know how to, I don't even know how to get in the river. But it says here in Ephesians chapter two that because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ. It is by grace that you have been saved, we're told. You have been baptized by Jesus in the river of his presence. You are reconciled with God and you have to begin with faith. This is, this is what we need to do. We have to say, I, I am gonna surrender to this river. I'm gonna, I'm just, not got, it's more, as I said, more about what you don't do. Stop fighting the river. Trust, faith. You have to start with faith. That, this is not something that you struggle to get to this position. This sense of being at one with Christ, at one with God and flowing with God is not something you have to work your way to. It's a position that you begin from. And you have to begin with faith and say, in Jesus Christ and because of Jesus, I am reconciled with God. I am one with the river of God. And begin there and trust and work there. And you will begin to see things that you didn't see before. Because see, your expectations have changed. This is what faith does, is that it opens up your expectation if you never ever expected anything. Oh, because, you know, because you're so this and you're so that and you're a complete failure. So you don't expect anything. Therefore, your mind will not perceive what is actually really happening. But faith opens up your field of perception. See, your feelings won't tell you that this is the case because your feelings will just condemn you. This is why we, we keep waiting until I feel forgiven and accepted. Your feelings will never tell you that you are fit, not on the wrong side of faith. On the other side of faith, they will. Your logic, your logical mind won't tell you this because what logic will tell you is that you have done wrong and what we sow, we should reap. So therefore, I deserve bad stuff, not good stuff. That's what your logic will tell you. See, grace isn't logical because grace says you, you reap what Jesus sowed. Grace says you get what you don't deserve. That's not logical. So you don't listen to your feelings. Don't try and think your way into this. You've got to begin with faith. You've got to begin with faith. 
and let faith open up your field of perception. There are different kinds of people in this room. I'm just going to finish with this, just another couple of minutes. There are different kinds of people in this room. There are people that believe this who actually need to start doing something about it. I, I, believe, I believe we're moving into a time when God wants to actually activate some people. Activating some people. You need to realise that in Christ, you are seated at the right hand of God. And you actually need to begin to realise, I need to begin to, we all need, as the, we, this is what it means to become the church. It's not just one person you know, standing up and, and doing something. It's everyone activated. Like if I just take one little bit out of my car, the spark plug, do cars even still have spark plugs? Anyway, uh, sorry to all the mechanics. Like, oh, it doesn't do much. Like most of the time, you know. But it's like if I take one little bit out of the engine, it stops working. Every bit is necessary. I am in God looking for an activation of the Holy Spirit, that, that we would see God's Spirit activating us, that we could open our eyes and actually realise where we are spiritually, that there is this spiritual aspect of us. And we are seated at the right hand of God. We need to get active. We need to start acting that out and it, it will, we will actually see more as we function in that place. That's, that's the first group of people. Like you could actually start praying for people and start moving in faith, move in faith. And then there are those who are paralysed and who just think, oh, I'm, I'm one of those people that just never, ex-. actually, no, no. You've actually got to begin your day by saying, thank you, God, you accept me. Say it out loud. You accept me in Jesus Christ. I am loved in Jesus Christ. I am, I am forgiven. I am seated in Christ at the right hand of God the Father and then begin to pray accordingly and act accordingly. And your perception will open up. And then there are those who are just holding back and don't really believe at all because you're waiting for what? You're waiting, what, till you can think your way into this? It's like being in a, in a locked room, living your life in a locked room where you can't even imagine, maybe you, you can't even imagine a bigger re- reality out there. Bible says that unless a person is born again of the Spirit of God, they cannot see, perceive the kingdom of God. In other words, what's got to happen is that God needs to break in. I wonder if God's been pulling off some parts of that wall, smashing through. Are there some rays of light getting in? When God does that, what you need to do is you need to unlock the door and open the door of your heart and say, God, I surrender. I surrender. I'd like us to stand, please. I'd like us to pray a prayer this morning. Thanks, guys. Come up. I'd like us to pray this out loud together, particularly for the sake of those who, hear, who need to pray that prayer for the first time. A prayer of commitment. All right. 
all right, God, break in. I, like, I'm opening the door. I'm going to open the door. We're going to pray this together because this is a prayer I think we can all play, pray all the time. I just want you to pause because you're about to pray something very, very significant. When you pray this prayer, God is going to do things in your life. It'll be slow and steady, but your reality is going to begin to stretch open. God is going to come and He's going to take charge. So just think very carefully for a moment. Because God wants you to be willing. He doesn't force Himself on anyone. But He says, surrender to me and I will carry you. Are you willing to give complete control? Are you willing to give over complete authority of your life to God? If you are, then with a big voice, I'd like you to pray this prayer. If we can all repeat this after me, everyone who believes that they can say this, who wants to say this. Father, thank you for your great love. Thank you for coming to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for paying for our sins on the cross. Forgive me, Lord, for going the wrong way. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your forgiveness. I take hold of your saving hand. I commit my life to you today. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I am now your child and I will live with you forever. Amen.